0: And I answered to both as many times as he said it. So that was a different world. Like, it was a whole different world than I was used to or where I'd worked in or, or from. And uh, the, the culture, you know, where where they came from, the way they talked, the way they, they joked. Uh, even in high school, even, like, the... The dirtiest language and jokes and stuff <laughs> through high school. It didn't touch that, right? So it was a whole, whole other world for me. And uh, I really, as as a, as a follower of Jesus, I really wanted to uh, do my best not to be uh, influenced and and to get along with them. I didn't want to be, you know, separate. I, I wanted to build some good relationships and, and things there. And so it was it was a totally different. Um, way to be, and I was able to engage in conversations and make some relationships and things like that, but it was, it was a completely different world than, than the world I was used to, and I, I learned one thing from that, uh, mainly that how we live for Jesus in a world that wants nothing to do with Jesus actually matters, right, so how we live for Jesus in a world that wants nothing to do with Jesus matters, and that's actually why we're moving into the book of Daniel. Because uh, the tribe of Judah, or the southern kingdom, half of uh, the Israelite people, uh, once the kingdoms were split later on in in the Old Testament, uh, was eventually judged by God. They had disobeyed him so much, and God warned them and warned them and warned them that he did what he did not want to do, and allowed them to be captured, conquered, and taken away to a foreign country land. And so I felt very much like I was in a foreign land when I was working there. And so Judah, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they were in a foreign land under King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And they uh, had to figure out how to live in this place. And in case you didn't notice, we are living in a sort of Babylon. Though we as followers of Jesus haven't been conquered and taken away from our homeland and culture. We've grown up here, but we have a very different culture. There's a very different worldview at work around us. And so, looking to 2,600 years ago, uh, what God wrote then through, through Daniel, what God did in Daniel's life, actually matters now. Because they were going through the same things then. And so what was fresh and what was meaningful then actually can be fresh and meaningful Today And I hope through this series of Daniel, as we look at him and his three friends and how they behaved and what they believed and what God did through them, in that culture and in that time, that we can apply that in our lives because we are no different than them. Some of the details have changed, but uh, you know, we, we need to understand that Daniel and his three friends, they were just thrown into a completely different culture. One of the authors I read says this. They lived in a world set against them and somehow managed to maintain their distinctiveness. These men stand out in a crowd. They held on to their faith in God despite the temptation and persecutions of the world they lived in that was thrust upon them, and despite the fact that triumph sometimes eluded them, these men modeled the life of faith and become a source of great encouragement and inspiration for those who struggle with the same problems after them. And so we're going to be looking at uh, Daniel chapters 1 through 6. The book is divided into the first half, mainly narrative or story. It's pretty easy to understand. The second half is mainly prophecy, and we're not going to get into that. So if you're a bit of a prophecy buff, I don't mean to disappoint you. At some time, we'll get into prophecy and things. Um, But for this series, we're going to be primarily looking at how Daniel lived in the midst of this culture. Now, you may not have a factory to go to, maybe you do, Um, but you have a life and so you have groups of friends or you have a work situation, a home situation, a school situation, maybe you've got a group online or some stuff in person where when you're there it feels like there's very much a pull to get you to be and do someone other than who you are in Christ. And if that's the case, which I think that's the case for all of us, we all have some situation, some area where it would be easier just to kind of be like everybody else rather than be who we are in Christ. We all have that situation. And so understanding that that's exactly what Daniel was dealing with can help us understand how this book How this book from the Old Testament that talks about events from like 2,600 years ago can actually help us. Now, you may or may not know this, but the authorship and the date and the details of Daniel actually is debated quite a bit between scholars. So maybe you've grown up in a church and you've never heard of of this. But there's basically two schools of thought. What we traditionally would have and what I uh, believe still and, and will be teaching is that Daniel, mentioned in the book, actually wrote this at the time, or around the time it happened, which is about 2,600 years ago, so 6th century B.C., and that the dates and details he wrote are accurate. But there's another school of thought um, that says something different, because this school of thought, you know, there, there are parts of Daniel that are written in the first person, and there's prophecies he makes that, no one could have possibly known, and they come exactly true as you look back through history, and some that haven't happened yet. And so this school of thought who doesn't believe that Daniel wrote it at that time, it's for those precise reasons. So there's first-person narrative, like I, Daniel, but there's also pieces that say it's third-person speaking of Daniel. And the accuracy to which some of these prophecies come true this school of thought says it must be about 2nd century uh, AD. So, so sometime in the 2nd century, someone wrote it on behalf of Daniel. Some, some Jewish person attributed it to Daniel. Because how else could you know that all these things come true? Also, the book is written uh, in both Aramaic and Hebrew. And so they spoke Aramaic in, in and around Israel and through Rome and the, and the, and the Greek culture in the first, second century B.C. And so, you know, the thought is, well, why would there be some Aramaic in there? And the dating of the kings who reigned and ruled in Babylon, they're a bit different in certain historical accounts than they are in the biblical ones. So what do we do with all all this kind of stuff? What some of the people who attribute this to just some sort of fantastical story to teach some morality, given to this guy named Daniel, who, interestingly enough, is not really mentioned elsewhere much in the Bible or in other historical pieces. We don't find them all that much, like some other biblical characters are mentioned throughout the the Bible and in other books of history. And so how do we reconcile these two? Well, what this school of thought, who attributes it to about the second century A.D., doesn't recognize is in the dating uh, different cultures date the reigns of kings because that's how they set the dating by. You know, in the the year that certain uh, Jewish or, or the king of Judah would reign or the king of Babylon would reign. And they look at the years. And some cultures attribute the start of a king's reign to the start of the year. And if you know anything about history, different cultures have different years, right? So... <laughs> Uh, Different calendars. I just had a conversation with someone this morning about why uh, Orthodox um, Christians celebrate Easter today, and why we celebrate it last week, and different calendars. Different cultures have different calendars. So if you set the reign of a king to start at the beginning of your calendar, but your calendar is different than another culture or period of history, it's going to be different. Some cultures set the beginning of a reign of a king as soon as they ascend to the throne. So the moment the, the previous king dies or they take over, that's the, that's, that's the dating. Some cultures date the reign of a king starting at the coronation, which can be years later. Right? Think, think of David in the Old Testament. You know, he's anointed as king by Samuel, and it takes him years Till God works everything out for him to ascend the throne. And if you are dating your history according to certain things, you're going to have very different dates. And this whole idea of different languages is fairly simple to work out. Not as an excuse, but it's actually very logical. Babylon was the superpower of the time. And the reason Daniel and his friends and all of Judah is there captured is because Babylon was assimilating these people. They would carry them away. And Daniel and his friends were, as we'll discover, trained in all sorts of literature and, and made wise in multiple languages and teaching. And so it makes sense that there would be other cultures in Babylon at the time. It makes sense that Daniel would be so learned that he could write in multiple languages. And so we have all these different dates. And the, the final thing for me is this. I think God has a fairly good track record of saying this is going to happen and then it happens, like last week? (laughs) Jesus said, I'm going to rise. I I won't be dead forever. I'm going to be resurrected and then he does. I mean, if Jesus says, I'm going to die and rise again and then he does, you should listen to that. And when God has such a good track record of Old Testament prophecies coming exactly true, there's no reason that we can't have faith that this is a... A good, a reasonable account for us to look at. And so as we jump into Daniel, we need to try and put ourselves in his shoes. What would it have been like to be him? And what would I do? And take those principles and apply them to our lives today. So in my factory, or in my Babylon, or in my group, in my life, in those areas where I'm being Hold away from who I am in Christ and being wooed into being something else. How do I respond like Daniel? So this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, that's going to be pretty handy. If not, you can follow on the screen uh, at home and here. We're going to actually read through the whole first chapter of Daniel. And you're all going, how long are we going to be here this morning? <laughs> it's okay. I, either, I have a choice to either tell the story or let Daniel tell it. I think he does a better job. So Daniel chapter 1 beginning at verse 1. We're going to divide it up as we go so you don't check out and get confused. I would too. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign. See how the dating is already off. Third year of his reign according to Jewish custom. In Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came into Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So what King Nebuchadnezzar does under permission of God, it's not like Nebuchadnezzar sought God out and said, can I do this? God just allowed him to do that because he was judging and disciplining his people. And if you look at the biblical narrative, several times in all the New Testament, God says it's actually because of my love that you're disciplined. I I discipline those I love to bring them back on course to be in close relationship with me. And so God does the thing he doesn't want to do as a last resort. Sends them away from their promised land. So their hearts might turn towards him. They might follow him again. And what King Nebuchadnezzar does is uh, terrible and genius at the same time. Because he, he didn't do what the Egyptians did in enslaving the israelite people where they had to guard them watch over them have an iron hand in fact the new testament setting the reason why on palm sunday the people were shouting hosanna most of those people would have wanted jesus to come and save now as a ruler and reigner in that time to restore israel and kick rome out right and so that's kind of how an oppressor works. Rome had Israel in New Testament times under its thumb. Military rule. It was the same in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar did something different. So he started with their sacred objects, their religion. And he took the sacred objects from the temple, the things that had to remain clean and pure to be used. And if you look all throughout Old Testament law, there's a lot about being pure and clean there. And he takes those things and he doesn't destroy them and throw them out. He defiles them by putting them in the treasure house of his God. And he makes them a spoil of war, and he also uses them to point towards his God. In in effect, he's saying, your God is weak. So I'm taking all that stuff that you think is so important to you and your worship of him, and we're just going to pack it away in this treasure house, in this storehouse. It's mine now, because my God is better. That's a lot more devious than simply burning the temple to the ground and being done with it. It does something psychological to the people, but he doesn't end there. So he defiles their objects and turns them to something for his gods. But he does the same with the people. Have a look. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are all well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens They were uh, to be trained for three years and then would enter the royal service. This is treacherous and genius. Okay, so if you're overtaking another nation, you can either enslave them and, and capture them away and rule them with military might, or you can change their leadership. You can sway their rulers to actually become part of your leadership. And so that their people are, convincing, are convinced by their rulers, their royalty, their leaders that this isn't so bad. So instead of having guards on every street, the people are just going along. A, a long-term plan. It's, it's, much, it's much wiser to have your captives believe they're not captives at all. And so one of the authors I read said there seems to be a four-stage plan for Nebuchadnezzar. And he gets the rulers, not not the current ones, but the up-and-coming ones, and not just the up-and-coming royal family to be brought into his palace, his home, and to rule with him under his rule, but to rule the people. He gets the best ones, the best-looking, so the ones that people would more naturally follow the smartest, the wisest, who would make good decisions because he doesn't want his rule and his reign ruined by a bunch of people who aren't, you know, skilled. And so there seems to be this four-stage plan. First, he chooses the best and the brightest. Okay, so he brings them and goes about a training plan, which is stage two. He trains them to master the Babylonian culture, literature, and religion. So that over the three years, they would start to turn. They would deeply understand where they were living and who they were living among. And in fact, become Babylonian themselves. The third one is he gave them honor and position. So he didn't just put them in some little training camp and say, learn this and do this. He welcomes them in with open arms. So I'd imagine when they first got there, they'd be very angry questioning God, maybe ready to turn from him, questioning themselves, you know, who who are we, why why did this happen? Wanting to, to fight, wanting to flee, but knowing they couldn't, feeling very helpless and powerless. And instead of bringing out that kind of fight or flight thing, he just welcomes these young rulers, gives them a seat at his table, dresses them in fine clothes, gives them places in the palace lets them eat from his table and over that time the hope would be that they would kind of forget that this is actually a bad thing because if you go from Israel and and an oppressed nation a nation who you know has others warring against them all the time and they're being defeated and their homeland is ruined there's nothing to go back to and you're taken away as a prisoner expecting to maybe live in squalor or in prison and suddenly, like you're chosen, and you're given royal clothes, and you're given royal food, and you're given literature, and teaching, and training, and this isn't so bad. It's not so bad. But the fourth thing, and the end result, is actually the most devious. Because if that all works, eventually he will have shaped and molded their identity who they understand themselves to be, their purpose. Because if you have to make someone behave in a certain way, that's difficult but doable. If you have to make someone believe a certain way, it's difficult but eventually over time, possibly doable. But if you change someone's opinion of their identity and how they view their life, though captive, royalty. It's better here then you don't have to teach them the behavior or the belief at all because they'll naturally do those things. And as royalty and as rulers, they would teach their people to do the same. So that over time, there would no longer be Babylon and Judah. They'd all be Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar would build his kingdom from the inside out. A larger army, a larger people, greater prophet, and bring them in no more enemy to fight, right? There's no more Judah. You don't have to worry about Judah. They don't exist anymore. It's just Babylon taking over the world. It's treacherous, but it's genius. And here's how he did it. Here's where he gets into identity. Verse 6. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen. So there's there's a whole bunch of royals chosen to go into this assimilation program. Here's four of them. They were all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. Names are important, right? We kind of know that, our culture. We kind of know that. When we do baby dedications, I often share the meaning of a name. Not so much in our culture, our name's that important, but ask a school teacher. Okay, ask a teacher when they're looking at the list of names who's coming in their class in the fall, right, and they just see certain names. I'm not talking about knowing the actual kid, but sometimes certain names, they've had kids who behave alike with simple, certain names. It's not always the case, but there's something to our names. That connects to her identity. So in our culture it's maybe a little bit. We we lean into that, we believe that. In their culture your name meant everything. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. That's a pretty good name. His new name, Belteshazzar means O Lady or O Wife of Bel their key god. So they had three or four key gods and a whole bunch of others. There was Marduk, Bel Nebo and Aku. And so now his name means, "O oh, wife of Bel, protect the king. It's not a great name. <laughs> Hananiah means Yahweh. The one true God is gracious. What a wonderful name. His new name, Shadrach, means, I am very fearful of God. And that God being um, one of their gods, probably Aku, the moon god they worshipped. Mishael, his name's really cool. It it means, who is like our God? But it's actually better than that. It means, who is like what God is? Like, uh, God is so different than anyone or anything else. Who or what is like what God is? I can't even tell you what God is. He's so amazing. Who's like that? What a great name. (laughs) New name, uh, Meshach. I am of little account. Like, how demeaning, right? There's a possible second meaning as they look back. It means, who is like Aku? So they turn turn his name directly to a Babylonian god. And finally, Azariah. His new name is Abednego. His name means Yahweh is a helper. That's Azariah. But Abednego means servant of the shining one. Meaning servant of the god Nebo. And so their names all pointed towards the one true God and their meaning and their purpose in following him and being part of a nation who did that. And their new names pointed towards being part of Babylon and serving these gods. Nebuchadnezzar was not content with just trying to get them to behave differently in this new land. He wanted to change their very identity so that of their own nature, they begin to live like Babylonians and not servants of the Most High God. Now, God does this, too. If you remember back, you may know uh, Abraham was originally Abram. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many. Abraham's grand Oh, there we go. Jacob uh, meant heel or deceiver. Not a great name. So God changes it to Israel, which means God fights for. And in the New Testament... Jesus takes one of his disciples named Simon and names him Cephas or Peter, depending if you're speaking Aramaic or or Greek. And it means rock. And he says, on this rock, on, on who you are and how you lead, I'll build this new movement, this church, this movement of followers. He literally was trying to change the purpose of their life. Jesus was, God was, and Nebuchadnezzar was doing the same in a negative way. It's much easier to control someone if they believe they are someone else. If they take the identity they have been, throw that away and become something new. That's actually the truth of the gospel. That in our sinful nature, who we believe we are and how sin has marred and been caked on us like many layers. And who we believe we are before Christ, the process of being made new in him means That the core of who we are, who he's made us to be, knit us, Psalm 139 says, in our mother's womb, design us for a purpose and plan before the foundation of the earth. God knows who we truly are. The moment of belief, that becomes a truth and reality. And part of growing in Jesus is stripping off all these other things that have told us who we are apart from Christ and living in our true identity in him. Nebuchadnezzar's trying to do something different. And so he's got them in Babylon, not just to make them captives, but to change their very identity. You know we're in, a, like, Babylon, right? Our culture we may not have been carried away from, but there's a ruler, not named King Nebuchadnezzar, named Satan, and, and the New Testament says he's the prince of the air, and in some way he has dominion over the earth, and God allows him to do that. And there are things in our culture, and there are people in our culture who intentionally or unintentionally are leading people away from God. And there's nothing more that this kingdom and this king, Satan, would love more than for followers of Jesus to misunderstand their identity. There's nothing better for people in our culture, in our society, to gain an identity somewhere other than the one who created them. It can come from behavior. It can come from desires inside. It can come from all sorts of beliefs, things you're told, things you see in society. From the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, there is a plan in place to shape and change our identity, to pull us away from who we are in Christ and who he knows us to be. Whether or not you've decided to follow him or not, he knows who you are. He's planned you, and there's a pull away from that so that you forget that or never discover that and live different. You know, when I was a a youth pastor, it was typical to do, like, the youth pastory talks, right? Don't drink. Don't have sex before marriage. Be careful of drugs. All this behavioral stuff, and then that didn't always really work because, like, Christianity is not a religion, and it's not about behavior modification. But belief is really important because what you believe, you act on. So I would speak about our belief in who Jesus is and what are the principles underneath the behavior. But this insidious plan that we are really living in in our culture, in our time, to impact the very identity of someone, who you think you are, doesn't have to touch belief or behavior before changing a person. And belief and behavior just kind of naturally flow from that. And if you believe you are someone you are not, you're going to behave and believe very differently. And so we're in a battle Babylon. But here's the most important verse in chapter 1. We'll take it in two parts. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. But Daniel was determined. He was determined in his heart. Now let me bust a little myth here. This has nothing to do with being a vegetarian. We cannot take something today and read it back in. There's nothing wrong with being vegetarian. In fact, in the New Testament, God had to, you know, convict Peter who wouldn't eat certain things. It's all good. You like meat? Eat up. You want to be a vegetarian? Have at it. It doesn't matter. It's not speaking about what Daniel was eating. This is talking about what he would not do to defile himself. And we don't know if the the meat and the wine given to him from the king's table was offered to idols and therefore unclean. And so as, as, a, as a Jewish, as a follower of Yahweh, he wouldn't do that. Or maybe he was wise to what was going on, that he was being bought off. He was being bribed. He was being wooed into a, um, having his identity and who he was, no longer connected to God, but to his position, and the food he ate, and we still do this. Do you know this? Maybe you don't know this. If you've worked in a factory, okay, Uh, talking about factories a lot today, okay, you get this, all right? So you're on the floor, and you're working. It's hot. It's hard work. You're all looking up at the, you know, management window, looking down in their air-conditioned office, in their suits, their expense uh, accounts, their company cars, and they're looking down on the floor and making decisions, and you're told, we're going to do this this way, and you're like, you don't even know how, th- that's not going to work. And you all talk, and you're shaking your fists, and you think you know better. Until one of you, who shows a little bit of promise, gets called up to the office. And next week, that person comes in in a suit, or a suit, or whatever, man, woman, whatever, management, right? And suddenly that person has an expense account in a company car. And suddenly if they were shaking their fist at, they're not so bad. Like, come on. And when they come down to the floor, they talk to their old friends, and they're like, guys, it's not that bad. Like, I, you just don't understand. You, you don't have the full picture down here. And trust me, it's good. And the people down here are like, You sold out. (laughs) You bought the lie. They bribed you. And you've forgotten who you were. Still happens today. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. But Daniel determined in his heart that he wouldn't do what the Babylonians do. He determined in his heart that he wouldn't download his identity from anywhere other than God. He was determined that he wouldn't defile himself by doing the things that the Babylonians wanted him to do, by doing the things that King Nebuchadnezzar told him to do so that he would be changed and put aside God and put aside who he was. The rest of verse 8 says this. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded... I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the others, uh, other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Notice that Daniel decides in his heart he's going to be a person of character. He's going to have godly character no matter what. Whatever he does, whatever depends on him. But there's an important part to that that we see here. Because he determines in his heart he's going to be a person of character and how he relates to others too. We all know this. Okay? We've been through two, three years of people making a determination in their heart. I'm going to mask. I'm not going to mask. I'm going to get vaccinated. I'm not going to get vaccinated. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you choose. What you choose and how you behave and how you impact others matters. And so we had people on both sides who behaved so poorly as followers of Jesus they ruined their witness and maybe the witness of their church. It doesn't matter what you choose. The masking and vaccination were a cover for character. How you behave with others. And Daniel didn't just say, I'm a Jewish man. I will not eat your food. Pickets, big signs, doing a protest outside. but He'd just be killed. (laughs) Daniel would be like three verses long. There once was this guy named Daniel... He said, I'm not eating the king's food, and he died. End of story, right? We seem to think that when we take a stand for our faith, it needs to be bold and strong in a way everyone knows, and I'm right and you're wrong. But somehow Daniel met in the middle, and he kept his integrity and character with God without defiling himself. And he had character integrity with others, such that they favored the very guy who was going, I'm not so sure about this. All the other youths were going along with it. They're happy to eat the meat and wine. It's probably good. Daniel was pushing against the norm, but in a way that he was respected. We can do both. That's really important. And he actually listened to this guy. He didn't just say, well, my belief is my belief, and what I do is what I do, regardless of what happens to you. I don't care. You do you, I do me. Because this official said, I'm really worried for my life. Like, I want to hear you out, but I'll die. (laughs) Like, Nebuchadnezzar will kill me. You do this thing, and you're weak, and I've disobeyed a direct order, I'm done. So Daniel gets this middle-of-the-road plan. Verse 11, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff. So chiefs of staff's guy, right? Who's watching over them, boots on the ground, right? To look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Crazy. He didn't say, I'm going to do this forever. He said, test it. Let me put my faith in action. And we'll see what happens. That takes a lot of faith. Because what, what's the result? The result is if it doesn't work, he's going to have to eat this food. He's going to have to defile himself. He's really putting God on the line. But he's doing it in a respectful way. At the end of the ten days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. Let's be practical and logical. Let's keep this quiet. We'll just do it quietly. Just four of us. We'll just do it quietly. doesn't work out we'll get wolfing down that meat and, and wine and we'll, we'll beef up again so that you don't get in trouble. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and ten, tested them for 10 days. Daniel finds a respectful middle ground. Did you know that you can de- decide and determine in your heart to follow Jesus with all your being and not be offensive to others? If your who you are offends others because you follow Jesus, you're doing something wrong. If what you believe offends, but you're well-liked, you're doing something right. We need to pay attention to how we behave with others. Because it's half the equation. If our relationship with God is intact and our relationship with others are a mess, we're doing something wrong. What's the result? We'll read the rest of the chapter here. Verse 15. At the end of ten days, here's what happened. Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. See how their acts of obedience actually pave a way for others and and it's positive and good for others who aren't sure. They're kind of wishy-washy. What do we do? Even those who weren't strong enough to stand up for themselves. Daniel makes a way. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gives Daniel a spiritual gift, the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed them as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. What? At the end of this they entered royal service? Yes. Do you know you can be in the middle of these things and still follow Jesus? Yes. They entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar only saw them as enchanters and magicians, not followers of the Most High at this point. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the next king. Daniel has such integrity and such character, he just keeps doing what God calls him to do. He doesn't defile himself, doesn't throw away his faith, doesn't become like everyone else, doesn't understand himself in light of someone else's view, a sinful desire, anything. But he doesn't offend. And he's able to live in the middle of that culture. He determined in his heart to do what was right. He determined in his heart to depend on God. He determined in his heart not to defile himself. He determined in his heart to download his identity from God and nowhere else. And he determined in his heart to do and be the same person in private as he was in public. And God blessed him. God gave him spiritual ability. All four of those guys. Blessing and honor with a pagan king. It's, that's crazy. Here's what I want you to realize. When you're in the middle of a post-Christian culture, you have the choice to be changed or to be changed. When you're in the middle of a post-Christian culture, and we're post-Christian, right? We're built on Judeo-Christian values and our laws and legal system. We want all that morality. We want none of God. And so as soon as you take God away, everything goes, right? But we're built on that, but we don't do that anymore. We are more like Europe than we are America. Did you know that? And so we are very much post-Christian. But you can be in a post Christian culture and still have the choice to be changed by it or be changed. Where you end up depends on the direction you're heading. Daniel decided, he determined in his heart that word "determined" means to set your face towards we hear this in the New Testament when everyone's saying Jesus don't go to Jerusalem you'll be killed it says he had his face set towards Jerusalem he was determined you couldn't sway him Daniel was determined whatever it took to not defile himself to stay true to God but to do it in a way that was like Jesus you can follow Jesus big surprise and be like him you don't have to be a jerk To take a stand in our culture, you don't have to go online and abuse and offend others with strong language because you're afraid to say it in person. We can actually be like Jesus and be like Jesus. You have the choice. You have the choice to be changed or be changed. Who will you be? Who won't you? What will you do? What won't you? What will you believe? won't you? Who are you? And who are you not? You know, I wasn't always as strong as I wanted at that factory, but I certainly didn't do things that undercut my witness. You know, being a, like a 19-year-old and stuff, sometimes I got angry or sometimes, you know. But man, I learned a lot there. And God blessed me richly. I determined in my heart to learn to work hard, something I hadn't really done before. And so I would stay late and arrive early. I was given lots of overtime, extra responsibility, put on a second shift that they wouldn't put any other student on, and I was asked back for a second summer. God blessed my efforts not to be like others. Not everyone was a slacker, but there was enough. And I determined not to be that, not to be better than, just because that's who I wanted to be. I determined not to be swayed or turned and so during my lunch break, sometimes I'd read a small Bible or a devotional or a book I was for my summer courses, and I got to talk about my faith. We had the Billy Graham uh, big rally thing in town that fall, and so I was going through all sorts of training, and I, I took some people through steps to peace with God. and uh, not a lot, but enough. It was interesting to have debates and talk because all they wanted to do was see me crack, right? Like, they would would tell jokes and things just to see my reaction and, and try and get me to go along with that. I always got invited. We'd, we'd let off at a noon on Friday, and I would regularly get invited to the bar and the strip club because that's what they do on Friday afternoons. And I couldn't figure out why I'd do that. And having interesting conversations because it's a, well, my wife or my girlfriend and I, we have this agreement that we can check out the menu as long as we don't sample it. And I'm like, but, but, and so talking about different worldview and, and different way of being, I, I was just married not even a year. And it was great, but, but the thing that I remember most about God honoring what I had determined in my heart, in the middle of a, a totally different foreign culture, was that floor supervisor who called me Bernie, or that other expletive, is over time, we developed a, a, a friendship, and he really kind of, I think, had a soft spot towards me, although he yelled at me lots <laughs>
1: But I got to know a little bit about why
0: he had so much pain in his life and why he didn't really want to know anything about God. And there was significant, reasonable pain in his past as he shared with me. And I remember offering, I remember right where I was standing on the floor and the paint line in the middle of a hot afternoon, just offering to pray for him. And I thought he was going to rip my head off. And he just said, like, no one's ever offered to do that. He was receptive. And it wasn't me. But because of what I determined in my heart, I I hope a seed was planted some way, somehow. I didn't see a lot of fruit. But I definitely learned how the choices we make in our hearts to be determined not to be defiled, to be determined to stay who we are in Christ rather than be changed, can actually be changed. You can bring change around you. doesn't matter your school, work, setting, family, neighbors, sports team. doesn't matter what you've been involved in or what you're you know, possibly getting involved in now. You can determine in your heart and see that. And if there's anything we learn from Daniel, it's this. Because in this situation, it works out great for Daniel. But in a few weeks, we're going to be in the middle of a furnace and in the middle of a lion's den where Daniel and his friends are doing the same thing, same character, and it doesn't work out. And we're going to be tempted to think, man, it ain't worth it. God must not be with me. But the truth that we learn here in chapter 1, this but Daniel determined in his heart, is I think one of the most important lessons we can. And I encourage you, As you consider your walk with Jesus, or maybe you're not even following him yet, think about that first. Determine in your heart what direction you will go. Determine in your heart whose you are. Determine in your heart who you believe you are and what source you gain that from. And it will dramatically change the outcome. We can be like Jesus in a culture that wants nothing to do with Jesus without Offense, without ruining our witness and without defiling ourselves. And I believe that to be a truth I've lived and I hope you do too. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, thanks that we have a choice uh, to, to be changed or to be changed. I pray that we would be like these four young men who stood head and shoulders above all the others who followed you but were swayed and changed and didn't stand against the culture, who were willing to let others tell them who they were rather than discover their identity or stay to their identity in you. Father, I pray that we would be a people of both grace and truth. We would be a people who determines in our heart that we are yours. But in that determination, Don't take a stand so much for our faith that it so brutally offends others and undercut our witness that we have nothing more to share. I pray that we would be secure in you and that we would have the determination Daniel and his friends showed so that whether it ends up with our blessing and being welcomed into the royal court or cast into a lion's den or a furnace, we have faith that whether you save us or not, whether you come through in the way that we want, whether the seed we plant we ever see grow to fruition, we would be determined to follow you in a way that looks like you, Jesus. Help us to do that this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.